Hello, I'm Amanda Jezik, IDSA's Senior Vice President for Public Policy and Government Relations. Welcome to IDSA's COVID-19 podcast series that aims to keep IDSA members, medical professionals, and the public informed during this pandemic by talking with experts in the field of infectious diseases. In this episode, we'll be discussing antigen testing guidelines with Dr. Angela Caliendo, Professor and Executive Vice Chair of Medicine at Alpert Medical School of Brown University, and Dr. Kimberly Hansen, Professor at the University of Utah School of Medicine. Thank you both for joining us today. Dr. Hansen, let me start with you. What exactly is an antigen test, and how is it different than the other types of tests used to diagnose COVID-19? You know, we're really excited about um, our new antigen guidelines that have just been posted to the IDSA website. And what makes antigen tests unique is that these assays are designed to detect viral proteins. And that's different than the nucleic acid amplification tests that are looking for viral RNA or the serologic tests that detect the host's Uh, own our own antibody um, immune response to viral infection. So we're going after the virus, we're detecting viral proteins, and the vast majority of tests that are used, at least in the United States, detect the viral nucleocapsid protein. And that becomes important when we're thinking about viral evolution and the current viral variants that may be circulating in various communities. You know, so far, we're not aware of major structural differences in the nucleocapsid proteins that could affect our antigen tests with these viral variants. But surveillance to watch to see if variants affect how these tests perform will be important. But so far, we don't think that that's a a major problem. You know, the way these tests are designed, they come in kind of two different flavors. Most tests are point of care tests that are lateral flow devices or lateral flow assays. So think of a urine pregnancy test. It's a test strip to which a sample is applied. And then the test can be read either visually or with an instrument that's portable. And the neat thing about the point of care tests is they take about 15 minutes to run and they can be performed by non-laboratory trained staff. So they can be done in the field and have been you know, really widely deployed here at the current timing of pandemic response. There are some lab-based antigen tests that have to be performed in a clinical laboratory. They're more complicated to perform and they take about an hour to run. But when we looked at the data for the guidelines, the vast majority of tests that we looked at and to assess their test performance were these point-of-care lateral flow tests. The sample types tend to be nasal sample types, so either an anterior nasal swab, a mid-turbinate swab, or a nasopharyngeal swab. And you can imagine in the field, probably the most convenient would be an anterior nasal swab or a mid-turbinate swab. Like other respiratory viruses, we know that the antigen tests are less sensitive analytically. You need more virus to be present to generate a positive test. And we'll talk a little bit more about that in this podcast. But, you know, it's similar to other respiratory viruses. And just a reminder that when we get into the guidelines and our findings, we really only looked at antigen tests that had made it through the Food and Drug Administration, FDA, emergency use authorization process. So looking at tests that are currently in use in the U.S., but not in other countries. And Dr. Caliendo, are there circumstances or populations in which it makes sense to use an antigen test as opposed to another type of test? 
So based on the literature search that we did and literature review that we did for the guidelines, it's clear that the antigen tests perform best in individuals that are symptomatic. So individuals with symptoms of COVID infection. And the studies that we reviewed show that the antigen tests are less sensitive than nucleic acid testing. They have a sensitivity of about 80, 81%. So if you look at symptomatic individuals and you look at studies that compared nucleic acid testing to rapid antigen tests, rapid antigen tests come in at about 80%. Now they'll come in even lower in asymptomatic individuals. So if you use them for screening purposes, and that sits at more around 50%. And Kim will talk a little bit more about this in a few minutes. The panel really felt like a sensitivity of 80% led to an unacceptably high number of false negative results. So if you're going to use the best test that you can, NAT is gonna perform better than antigen tests. Now, one interesting thing that we did find is that antigen test performance was equivalent in children and adults. And this was important because based on NAT testing, there is some data to say that children have less virus in the respiratory tract. We were concerned that this assay may be, these tests may be less sensitive in children than they are in adults. And that in fact is not the case. They perform, the antigen tests perform just as well in children as they do in adults. But given this lower sensitivity, the panel ended up suggesting using standard NAT rather than rapid antigen tests for symptomatic individuals suspected of having COVID-19. One thing that we did find out that was very interesting was the tests have a very high specificity. And so false positive results are actually rare. And we did not suggest that you needed to confirm all positive results. So if you have a patient with a high risk exposure and they're symptomatic and the virus is circulating in the community at a high level, the likelihood that that's gonna be a false positive result is very low. But if you have an asymptomatic individual without an exposure, when the virus has a very low prevalence in the community, say less than 1%, that's the situation where you're going to see false positive results. And so whether a positive antigen test needs to be confirmed by a nucleic acid-based test really depends on whether the patient is having symptoms, whether they have a high risk exposure and what the prevalence of the virus is in the community. So low risk, asymptomatic, low level of virus circulating, false positives are more common and you should definitely confirm a positive result. Now, what situations would using an antigen test be useful? So if NAC testing is not available or the results are expected to be delayed for more than two to three days, then that is an appropriate use of antigen. Because as Kim said earlier, one of the advantages of these antigen tests is that the result comes back very quickly, patient is still in the testing site and you can make clinical decisions immediately after obtaining the result, which usually takes about 15 or 20 minutes. If you're going to use an antigen test, their performance is best during the first seven days of symptom onset. And you'll see this in package inserts where they recommend testing only symptomatic patients and those within the first seven days. And that's because that's when the amount of virus in the respiratory tract is the highest. And that's when these tests are gonna have the best performance. 
But again, if you have a high clinical suspicion, so they had a high risk exposure when the virus is circulating in the community and you get a negative antigen test, that's when you definitely would want to back it up with a NAT test. Thank you, Dr. Caliendo. Dr. Hansen, what role do antigen tests play from a screening perspective? Yeah, so it might be useful just to start by defining screening. For the guideline, we defined it screening purposes as testing in an asymptomatic individual who has no known or suspected uh, exposure to a laboratory-confirmed case of SARS-CoV-2. And we also assumed for our recommendations around screening that there was still some ongoing viral transmission in the community. Keep that in the back of your mind when we talk about screening. You know, as Angie mentioned, the sensitivity of antigen testing in asymptomatic individuals is much lower than in symptomatic. So, you know, it's about 49% sensitive, but the specificity is still very high. We thought one-time screening in kind of high stakes situations where you're making major decisions based on the results of the antigen test, and you know that in your community, there's still a moderate potentially prevalence on the order of 5% or more of SARS-CoV-2 infection in the community. So moderate pretest probability, high stakes decision. Because of the lower sensitivity of antigen tests, we did recommend using NAT. And some examples we gave for important decisions would be deciding about admission to the hospital and how to inform your infection control measures or cohorting on admission to a hospital or a long-term care facility. So screening with NAT would be preferred over an antigen test. You know, the other high stakes situation was uh, we thought screening before major surgery. Because the sensitivity of the antigen test is lower, using NAT, if possible, would be preferred. There's been some questions about repeat antigen testing in asymptomatic individuals. Is two tests better than one? Are multiple sequential tests over time better than no testing? And when we looked at the literature, we really could not find any studies that compared antigen testing repeatedly to NAT or no testing, just watching for symptoms. We, we didn't really come down on any firm suggestions about repeated antigen testing. That said, we did think one clinical scenario where repeated antigen testing could be useful would be in a closed congregate setting experiencing an outbreak. So serial surveillance in a nursing home, for instance, with a point of care antigen test could allow you to identify earlier individuals who are infected and potentially cohort or isolate them. And again, you might consider doing that if a rapid PCR, for instance, wasn't available, or if you needed to send NAT testing off to a clinical lab and the results were expected to be delayed. But that's one area that we really identified for future research, potentially, the need to really understand is repeated or more frequent antigen testing with a less sensitive test better than no testing at all? And if you're going to do repeat testing, how often should you do it? For how long should you do it? I think those are all unanswered questions that are important for future investigations. 
IDSA and the CDC present the COVID-19 Real-Time Learning Network. Timely COVID-19 information curated by clinicians for clinicians. Be the first to know. Visit IDSA's COVID-19 Real-Time Learning Network for the latest COVID-19 resources for the frontline healthcare community. Go to COVID19LearningNetwork.org. Dr. Caliendo, are antigen tests useful for assessing infectiousness? There's quite a bit of interest in using these tests to determine whether someone is actually infectious and could spread COVID to another individual. And the reason that this comes up is one of the characteristics of NAT testing is that the test can be positive for long periods of time, either in asymptomatic individuals or those that were symptomatic but that have recovered from COVID. And so you can recover from COVID and we can detect the RNA in your respiratory tract for weeks after the infection in some individuals. The reason for this, it's just a characteristic of NAT testing. And what we know is that you can have a positive NAT test and a negative antigen test. And what that means is that there is a low amount of virus in your respiratory tract. And as I said earlier, the NAT testing is more sensitive, so it picks it up, but the antigen misses it. And that's kind of a good clue that there's a small, there's a lower amount of virus circulating. So some people have concluded that that individual is not likely to be infectious because there's not a lot of virus in their respiratory tract. It sounds like a good conclusion, but you really can't determine whether it individual is infectious based on antigen test results. And there are several reasons for this. One is we know that culture is not the most sensitive test. And this is based on a lot of experience with other viral respiratory pathogens, such as influenza and RSV. And we commonly see individuals with those viruses that are symptomatic, that are NAT positive, but culture negative. So we know culture is not the perfect test to determine whether somebody is in fact infectious. Now, there were studies that we reviewed in which an individual had culture done, antigen, and NAT testing. So we had all three test results on the same individual. And the majority of the samples that were NAT positive and antigen negative were in fact culture negative. So about 90% overall, if we look at these studies in aggregate, only about 10% of, of the people, if they had a positive NAT, a negative antigen, were the laboratories able to culture virus. But still, that's 10%. And so you can't make the conclusion or draw the conclusion that just because your antigen is negative, that you are in fact not infectious. It's likely that you don't have a high concentration of virus in your respiratory tract, but you cannot make the conclusion that you're not infectious. I'd like to get both of your perspectives on this last question. As more of the population gets vaccinated, what role will testing play? I'll focus on asymptomatic vaccinated individuals. So you've been vaccinated, you have no symptoms. What's the value of doing an antigen test in that situation? We have to consider a couple of factors. One is how much virus is actually circulating in the community. And we know now across the country, pretty uniformly at this point, the amount of virus that's circulating is coming down. And in some areas of the country, it's actually quite low. We also know that these vaccines are highly effective 
And we know that antigen tests have a sensitivity of about 50% when you test asymptomatic individuals. So if you combine the fact that there's a low amount of virus that's circulating with a highly effective vaccine and lower sensitivity antigen tests, you would expect that screening asymptomatic vaccinated individuals with an antigen test is going to be a very low yield. Now, this is a situation where if you did get a positive result, you would actually want to confirm that with Matt, because in that scenario that I just described, there's probably an equal likelihood that a positive result is a false positive as a true positive. Kim, I don't know if you'd like to comment on vaccinated individuals that are symptomatic. I think in that scenario, there probably still could be some role for antigen testing in an individual who has clinical signs or symptoms that could be consistent with COVID-19 and assuming there still is some transmission occurring in the community. We know the vaccines are highly effective, but there have been cases of breakthrough infections. And so in someone with symptoms, you may consider doing an antigen test, especially if NAT is not available. Now, the same thing probably holds true in terms of backing up negative antigen tests in symptomatic patients. I think even if vaccinated and there's a clinical suspicion for COVID, a negative antigen test wouldn't necessarily rule it out. And you still probably would want to back it up with NAT if you did antigen testing first. You know, I think one thing we don't really know yet is how the antigen tests will perform in individuals who are infected with SARS-CoV-2 and have previously been vaccinated. Are there viral loads being shed in the respiratory, upper respiratory tract? Are they the same as unvaccinated individuals? Does partial immunity affect potentially how much virus is present and whether or not an antigen test is sensitive enough to detect it? I, I think we don't really know. So going forward, understanding how these tests perform in infected, previously vaccinated individuals will also be important. At this time, I'd like to thank Drs. Caliendo and Hansen for their time, participation, and expertise. For the latest information and resources on the COVID-19 pandemic, visit IDSA's website, idsociety.org, and don't forget to follow us on social media. Tune in next time as another diverse panel of medical experts discusses the latest on this rapidly evolving pandemic. I'm Amanda Jezik. The views and opinions expressed here are those of the presenters and do not necessarily reflect the official policy or position of the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. Involvement of CDC should not be viewed as endorsement of any entity or individual involved with the podcast.